welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. Hey Jacob, welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. How are we doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, no, but pr- the pleasure is all mine. So I guess, Jacob, let's get into it. Um, usually I ask my guests when they, when they join the show kind of what their logline would be and kind of what, you know, what, what summarizes them. What, what would your logline be? My logline? Yeah. What is a logline? I guess a logline is, a, in, in movie terms, it's kind of, you know, the punchline, what sells a mover. Or maybe it's just, uh. maybe it's something what, what summarizes you, maybe. Oh man, what summarizes me? This is a tough one. Um, <laughs> I suppose there are a lot of things that summarize me. Um, I'm a very competitive person. I'm a curious person. Um, but I'm also somebody that likes to have a lot of fun and enjoy life. And I'd also say I'm a, I'm a family person. So I, I, I love just hanging out with my wife our dogs, our two and a half year old. So I know it's probably not like a, a nice, um, a nice, easy flowing sentence together, but, um, I suppose that would be a good summary of me. No, that's a great summary. A great summary. So, so I guess kind of, yeah, you know, I tend to ask my guests when they come on, when, you know, way back when, when you was at, you know, maybe, maybe four or five years old and my teacher would say, Jacob, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you say? I really wanted to be a uh, <clears throat> a trolley car driver. Okay, I know this sounds weird, but uh, you know, like in San Francisco, they have those old tro- trolley cars, or even places like Australia, they have those little trolley cars. And I loved all the buttons and little gadgets that they could pull. Or I wanted to be a, a trash truck driver as well because I loved all the little buttons and gadgets that they had in their in their trucks. <laughs> so those were. Those were some things that came to mind when I was a kid. Awesome. It sounds like curiosity was a, was a big part of your, of your childhood by the sounds of things. Yeah, either that or buttons. One yeah. of the, one of the <laughs> so, so I guess, you know, my, my listeners will undoubtedly be, be subscribed to your podcast and whatnot, and we'll get into that shortly. But I thought what I might do, um, if I can throw out some words and you tell me kind of what comes to mind with, with these words, maybe. And it can be sure. a gut feeling. So the first one, <clears throat> employee experience. Uh, the word that comes to mind is essential. Okay. Okay. Um, culture. Leader. Learning and development. HR. Okay. And the last one, <clears throat> hierarchy. Hierarchy. Um, destruction. Oh, nice, nice, good choice. So, I guess you know, for maybe the one percent of my guests who who kind of don't know who you are, maybe you could give us a bit of a, a whistle stop tour of kind of where you've come from to kind of where you are right now and this stuff. Yeah, what what your life looks like, I guess. Sure. So, I am an author, I'm a speaker, and a trained futurist. So, I went to the University of Houston and received my uh, professional certification in foresight. And I also studied economics and psychology at the university of California, Santa Cruz, uh, way, way before that. And basically I got into all the stuff that I'm doing now is because I had bad jobs working for other people. And so through having these terrible jobs working for others, I eventually set off on my own. And 15 years later, here we are. 
And right now, a lot of what I do is focus on trying to get organizations and leaders who run those organizations to basically create environments where employees actually want to show up to work. And I do that through courses that I have, through Future of Work University. I do that through speaking, through workshops. And I try to create as much uh, free content as I can in the form of podcasts, videos, et cetera. So that's uh, pretty much what I'm focusing on. I like and I have a new book that I'm working on as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Oh, nice. But maybe touch upon that in a sec. But so, so I guess kind of, you know, when, you know, when we, we, when it comes to kind of attracting new talent within the business, and I think when it comes to kind of interview stages, we, we tend to ask our people, show us the best self and show us all the stuff you've achieved. And actually, I think one of the better questions we should ask when, when trying to, you know, when it comes to interview stages is actually what, what does your failure resume look like? You know, what's been the biggest thing, what you failed in, which actually maybe later on down the line has been a big success. So I guess, with that in mind, if I was to say to you, Jacob, what, 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 what does your past failure resume look like? What's the one thing what kind of jumps out to you? Probably the biggest failure was a startup that I once tried to have in the Bay Area, uh, and it was interestingly enough. This is now like a, a multi—I I don't know if it's a billion-dollar company yet, but it's it basically I had the idea to create something like Nextdoor before Nextdoor was Nextdoor which is basically a, a social network for people that live in certain neighborhoods or cities or buildings. So we had this idea to create basically what Nextdoor is now. And so for people that are not familiar with Nextdoor, it's basically a social network that is divided up by neighborhoods. So for example, if you live in a particular neighborhood or if you live in like a large uh, condo building or an apartment complex, you would have your own version of Nextdoor. And all the members there are just people who are either in your building or who are in your neighborhood. And so you guys can share information and get to know each other and ask questions, all that sort of stuff. But it's it's not like a public network for everybody. It's sort of like a, it's a private um, neighborhood group. So with the, we had the idea to do something like that. And um, you know we were even close to raising money at the time. And yeah, it was just a disaster. It didn't work out well. So I'd say that was probably the biggest failure. Oh, nice. Okay. So, so it's interesting. I think, you know, I've, I've been lucky to work um, with a startup a couple of times in, in my career. And I think, you know, when we look at how quick and how, how, how easy startups get this employee experience and because obviously, you know, a lot of times they're smaller, right. And they're not like these giant, these giant orgs as such. But if, if I was to say to you, what's the one thing, what, you know, when it comes to kind of stand, standing out and maybe from the employee experience, kind of what's one thing what jumps out what you would, if you could, lift and shift from a startup and jump straight into one of these big corporate environments? What's one thing what you try to do? Put people in positions of power who care. So make sure that the people who are leading the companies are the ones who genuinely care about this, uh, this concept of employee experience, who believe in it, who are willing to invest in it. That'd probably be the number number one thing I can think of. All right. Okay. Okay. So, so I guess kind of, you know, maybe we could get into, into the book and, and, and the podcast. So, so I think the most, the most recent book, well, the one which, which I've read most recently is the, the employee experience advantage. So, yep. yeah. So kind of, yeah. I mean, wh why the book kind of, where did, you know, where did that urge come from and, and how was it writing? Cause that would be your second, was it your second book or your third book? I think second, maybe. So how, how, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the reason why I wrote that book, 
Um, it's basically because I noticed that a lot of companies were investing in something known as employee engagement. And I started to look at a lot of the data and the research behind it and noticed that even though companies are investing a lot of time and money and resources into this, the, the scores collectively are not going anywhere. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How, how could that be the case where we're investing so much time and money and energy into something, yet the, the scores are not moving? And so I started to dig into this a little bit further. And that's when I noticed that this concept of uh, employee engagement, although it's been around for decades, companies never really did much with it. They, they really just invest in perks and benefits and um, kind of the... Uh, the the facade aspects of work, but they never actually change the core workplace practices or what it's like to be a part of those organizations. And so I became really interested in that, and I started doing research on this and interviewing a lot of executives and going through business articles, and realized that there are really three things that control how engaged employees are at work, and that's culture, technology, and space, physical space. And again, through more research, through interviewing a lot of executives and finding out what the top companies are doing, and I looked at 252 of them, I realized that the, the, the deeper investments are in these three areas. And that became what I call employee experience, culture times technology times physical space. So it's basically how to actually make, not, not change the facade. I, I, I use the analogy of a car. It's the difference between changing the paint of a car versus changing the engine. And this idea of employee experience is changing the engine. Okay. So, so I guess, you know, it's interesting when we talk about employee experience and my background kind of is experience design. And I think one of the things which, well, yeah, I think it's a few things. I, I kind of call it the, the little big things, what matter, um, you know, and, and it's interesting, I guess I was listening to um, IDO you know, your podcast with, um, Tim, I think it, it was, um, and, and kind of, it's interesting, this, this design of this experience. And I guess kind of coming from that, where, where do you see the future of this employee experience going? Because, you know, I think in some orgs, it's kind of very, this process, this non-organic, this very system driven process. And then you've probably got the other end of the spectrum where it's this organic and ebbs and flows with the business. So, so kind of where, where do you see the, the future of employee experience going? Definitely still early stages now. I think companies are just trying to grasp what this is now. And, um, you know, we're starting to see these new job titles emerge and a lot of companies focus and invest on employee experience. But I think this is the um, basically the next big battleground for organizations around the world who want to create great places for employees to show up. So if you want to create a company that is able to attract in the best people or attract and retain the best people, if you want to create a company where employees actually want to show up, then this concept of employee experience is an absolute um, essential and necessity for you. But I don't think it's ever going to go away because culture, technology, and space are always things that are going to be relevant to your company. So <clears throat> I think the experience of your organization, it'll probably change over time as you get new technologies, as new trends emerge. But I believe these three environments will remain relatively consistent, at least for the foreseeable future. So as far as where I see it going, I think those three environments will stay the same. But I think we're just going to see, hopefully, more investment, more emphasis on it. We're seeing new job titles emerge, focused on employee experience. And so I think, uh, hopefully, we will eventually see more organizations where employees genuinely want to be a part of the company. 
Cool, cool. So it's interesting when when we talk about kind of the people within the company, and and one of the things you know, a, a quick Google search on AI, and you get lots and lots of articles. People, you know, fear and whatnot. But how how do you think maybe maybe it's schools, colleges, whatnot? How how do you think they should address this thing of kind of, of engineering the, the the child's mind in school to kind of get the head round the fact of you know, in theory, but the 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 upskilling itself for jobs what don't even exist yet. What what do you think schools could be doing? Maybe colleges, schools to kind of get get people primed for that. Well, I think a lot of schools are really good at uh, trying to help people prepare for tests, right? So I mean, that's that's really what what school is, what all schools are or have been. It's really just about trying to get people to prepare and know what's going to be on the test. I mean, I'm thinking back to my college uh, days and even when I was in middle school or high school, everything you did was just about making sure you pass the final, making sure you pass the quizzes that are there. That's how you are evaluated. It's basically, do you pass the tests? And unfortunately, in the business world um, or in the real world, that's not quite how things work. It's not about passing the tests. And so I think what we need to do inside of educational institutions is instead teach employees how to think teach or teach, uh, I should say, students how to think, teach students how to learn new things, put them in uncomfortable and new situations and see what happens. I mean, we need to teach them how to um, how to essentially learn and grow and develop instead of trying to figure out how to pass what's on the test. And that is a change that I think is, is, is essential, yet also one that we haven't really seen companies do. So, so I guess kind of and I'm probably going way, way ahead here in the future, but, you know, I mean, what's your take on kind of, do you, do you think there's any way, you know, with the whole fear of AI and, you know, the uprising, I guess, what, what's your take on this kind of, this universal basic income? Do, I mean, do you even think there's any way in the future that we can avoid that given, you know, the, the amount of pace of change, what's happening? So specifically around universal basic income? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting concept, but I don't think that alone is going to be a solution for anything. You know, if you don't make any changes at all and you all of a sudden just start giving people free money, I don't think that's going to do anything. I think universal basic income could be one potential ingredient in the solution soup, so to speak. But just giving people free money, I don't think is going to do much. Um, You know, I think a couple experiments have been trying, have been running. I believe there was one in Europe and they found that the effect of universal basic income, I don't think did much there. I think there are a couple experiments also happening in the United States in various areas, which I, I haven't seen the results of those experiments yet. It's an interesting concept. It's an interesting idea. I wouldn't throw it out automatically, but I also wouldn't rely on it as the kind of the silver bullet solution that's going to fix all of our problems. Yeah, I think I think there's a, there's a, a massive potential behavior change piece. What will need to happen for that you know for that to kind of go ahead and, and and be successful and i think i think we see that a lot kind of so my my world looks like in organizational design and lnd and learning development but i think you know one of the biggest things we try to do is kind of change not change that behavior but allow that behavior to change organically but i think when when you look at something like you know this universal basic income it, it's there's, there's so much pieces to that that puzzle that it, it's it, it seems like it's a beast all by itself, and like you say, one what potentially on its own won't won't well won't survive. I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, remains to be seen what the ultimate solutions are going to be going forward. Uh, I think it's definitely, as far as universal basic income goes, um, an interesting concept. But I think we also still need to focus on reskilling and upskilling. I think we still need to focus on this idea of employee experience and organizations. I think we still need to focus on changing the way that we educate students in schools. I mean, there are a lot of components that we need to focus on. Yeah, definitely. So, so when it comes kind of back to your book, I guess, when, you know, given I've never written a book, but, you know, I, I know a couple of authors and and I kind of always ask him this question and actually I kind of like to see where, where you would take this. So obviously, you know, the book's near and dear to you, but which of the chapters within the, the um, employee experience advantage, which one was your, your most favorite, I guess, which chapter really stands out for you? Oh man, that's a hard question. Um, you know, there's one chapter in there. I, I don't think it stands out. I think it's like kind of a summary. Uh, there's one chapter in there where I basically uh, have a couple charts and graphs around how to evaluate what stage your organization is in when it comes to employee experience. And so that chapter is probably a good summary overview of um, of what employee experience is. And it's a simple way to evaluate yourself. So it's probably a, a very helpful and easy one for people to read. Okay. And then I guess the flip side, which was the most challenging and, you know, the most challenging maybe it's to write or it, maybe it was challenging personally for you, given, you know, your background and whatnot, but which, which chapter was probably the most, the most challenging for you to write? I don't know. Uh, the, the book was based on data and research. So, um, probably the hardest part for these books is just kind of going through all the data and the research and telling compelling stories around it. But I don't think there are necessarily any chapters that are harder to write than than others. I mean, at least not for me. I've never, for example, written a book and thought, "Oh man, there's just this one chapter. I, you know, I can't figure out how to do it, uh, or what to say, or what to write." Um, the entire book, <laughs> the entire book is hard, to be honest. That's good. It's good, and I highly recommend anyone who hasn't. You know, to, to take the time out and read that book, I think it, it was a fascinating book. I ended up, end up getting it twice, actually. I bought it and then I ended up going with, with the audiobook as well. So, Oh, well, I appreciate that. Hey, no, it's the least I can do, right? It's the least I can do. So so kind of, you know, I kind of, all, these questions kind of ping around a little bit and it's kind of, and that's the idea, right? Some of it is kind of just to get you thinking on your feet. But if I was to say to you, how would you explain what you do to a five-year-old? What, what? How would you, how would you approach that? Well, I have a three-year-old. Okay. And so, you know, not, not quite a five-year-old, um, but, and interestingly, because my wife does a lot of the same stuff that I do, but she focuses on, um, on customer experience. So, I mean, the way that I would explain what I do to a five-year-old is basically I go talk to a lot of people to make their organizations and their people happy. Okay. Okay. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Simple enough. Yes. No, simple is, is often the best way. So kind of going back to this childhood and, and kind of taking you back to yours, I guess. Can you remember the first time you ever got in trouble? And if so, can you remember, can you remember that experience? Uh, at school? Yeah. I think I accidentally uh, flipped off a teacher. Okay. <laughs> or maybe it was on purpose. I don't remember. This was an elementary school. And I 
Yeah, I, I flipped off a teacher and I think she saw me and put me in the corner. Nice. I think I think it's, it's fascinating how, you know, our experiences shape our recall and, and, you know, fundamentally there's a reason why we can remember our favourite teacher's name or the bully's name. And it's interesting how quick we can kind of go back there and, you know, a lot of what I talk about within the experience design is kind of about recall. So it's interesting to kind of see how far back you can go with, with kind of a memory like that. So, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's the first one. I mean, I'm, maybe if I noodle on it for a little bit more, something else will pop into mind, but yeah, that one stands out. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. So, so if I was to say to you kind of what, what's, what's a free, yeah, let's go with free. Who's the three main people who, you know, you reckon my listeners should be following and excluding you but who who do you recommend everyone should be following on on kind of yeah on LinkedIn or, or Twitter or Facebook or whatnot? You know, I have no idea um, because I personally don't follow much. Okay, uh, you know, a lot of people always ask me what what books do you read, what uh, podcast do you listen to. None. I mean, I i try my greatest source of information or inspiration is just from talking to people and speaking at events you know i I have a podcast and so i get a chance to speak to a lot of great business leaders and when i speak at conferences or when i work on books i get a chance to do research and interview people so that's where i get a lot of my ideas and information from i might read a couple of books as research for a book that i'm working on but if i'm not writing a book I'm honestly not really listening to podcasts. I'm not reading any other books. I spend my free time doing like chess puzzles and uh, playing chess or hanging out with family or doing other stuff. But honestly, I have no idea. I I don't really follow uh, other people out there. Nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. So so then I I think you've kind of already alluded to it a little bit, but, you know, I'm assuming... And, and maybe the follow-up question is actually this, but what, what does a what does a day in the life of of Jacob look like? Oh man, it's different every day because yeah, I have a home office, so I have my own schedule. Um, I don't do meetings on Mondays, Wednesdays, or Fridays, so all of my meetings are done on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I only check email and social media once at four o'clock uh, on each day. So I'm, I'm not stuck in front of my computer or social media all day. And right now, at least for the past few months, most of my time has been either writing the new book that I'm working on. It's been doing research for the book. It's been on phone calls with CEOs who I'm interviewing for the book, or it's been traveling to speak at conferences or preparing for a conference or a talk or doing my own podcast or creating content in the form of videos or articles or, or whatnot, but it's different each day. So there's no, there's no template. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll go out to lunch with somebody. Um, I go to the gym every morning. I do orange theory, I'm usually up around six thirty or seven each day. And then my mornings usually start out by breakfast. I do stretching in the morning, take daughter to school at around eight o'clock. My wife walks the dogs. She's up far earlier than me. She's up at like five 30 or six. And then uh, we do our orange theory class gym from around nine to 10, Uh, walk the dogs. And then my work day actually doesn't begin until around 11 AM. So probably much later than most. 
And um, yeah, from there, I'm just doing a variety of different projects. Uh, and then, you know, I usually try to stop working between 536. But then after that, depending on what I'm, what I have going on, uh, you know, you might do a little bit more work later, but I, I try not to. My wife and I in the evenings, we usually like to watch a show. So we like to just kind of hang out, chill out, relax. But again, every now and then something does come up. If you have a big speech or a big deadline, you, you might finish up work. But we try to do that after our daughter goes to bed. Right. Okay, so Orange Theory, what, what, what's that? That's new to me. Yeah, I've, I've tried. So I'm a big uh, health and fitness enthusiast. And I've tried all sorts of different workouts, uh, CrossFit and just working out myself at the gym. And my wife's been doing Orange Theory for a while. And I recently started doing it a couple months ago. And it's, uh, so think of CrossFit, but much more focused on high intensity interval training, not so much on Olympic powerlifting, but more on stamina, endurance, uh, strength training as well. But it's a lot of high intensity interval training. So you're mixing between running, between being on the rower, between doing floor exercises and your, your heart rate is consistently up. So, you know, in a 50, 55 minute class, I burn anywhere from 700 to 900 calories. So it's, it's. Yeah, it's much more than I would do on my own. Um, so it's fun. I, I like it a lot. Uh, they play loud music in there. So I, I enjoy it. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. I'll, I'll definitely look that up once we're done. So It's a good workout. Yeah, it, it sounds it. I, I used to do um, CrossFit way back when, um, a good couple of years ago. Um, I snapped my ACL in my leg and then I kind of just, yeah, kind of bow, bowed out of CrossFit. Um, I know a lot of people that got hurt in CrossFit, <clears throat> not, not to say that like CrossFit is bad. It's just not for me. I'm not trying to become big. I'm not trying to necessarily lose weight. So for me, I'm much more interested in the high intensity interval training, uh, being, you know, definitely maintaining strength, but having more of that endurance and stamina. Whereas CrossFit is, I think much more about kind of strength, powerlifting, Olympic weight training, that kind of stuff. And for me, eh, it's it's not not as relevant, uh, just because you know I also don't want to get hurt. Um, yeah. For me, somebody that travels a lot and speaks a lot, you know, too many stories of people hurting their ACLs, pulling their back, tearing shoulders, and I'm like, ah, eh, it's just not not something I'm interested in. No, definitely, definitely, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, you know, CrossFit got me in great shape, but you know, I think there was a bit of a tear there beforehand, anyway. To be honest, so. Kind of, if I was to ask you, and maybe, yeah, this is actually good. So let's say you you have a stadium and a million people is going to come out of the stadium and it's a million CEOs. And they, as they walk out of the stadium, they're going to see a billboard. What message would you put on that billboard to shape a, a million CEOs' minds? Uh, it would say probably something like, your job is to help make other people more successful than you. Okay. Um, or something along the lines of um, purpose and impact and meaning and kind of creating creating something that lives and extends beyond the CEO themselves. So, you know, creating, creating a legacy of a great company or something like that. Um, I don't know exactly how I would phrase it, but if I had to pick a billboard, I mean, the first kind of phrase that comes to mind is help make other people more successful than you. I love that. I love that. I guess kind of, kind of just going back to kind of, you know, with your experience and whatnot, who, what, what companies really stand out to you who are really nailing kind of, 
employee experience? Which ones kind of jump out? And I, I guess you know it's hard because you've, you've seen many, but maybe maybe yeah. What what two or three jump out to you for really really getting this? Which companies? Yeah, which companies? Yeah. Um, there are a few. I think Cisco is doing a good job. I think Accenture is doing a good job. And these are all organizations that, you know, they, they focus a lot on having the right leaders in positions of power. They create spaces where employees want to show up. They make sure that employees have access to great technologies to do their jobs on a regular basis. They focus on health and wellness and well-being programs. They have diversity and inclusion efforts. I mean, they, they just go above and beyond to really remove stress from the lives of employees and to just make it so that they want to be a part of the company. It doesn't mean they're perfect, right? Every company has their problems. Um, and I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's such thing as a perfect company, but I really like that these organizations have, um, you know, really taken these initiatives seriously and, and they've made changes. They made really significant changes to how the company operates. Everything from getting rid of performance reviews and annual engagement surveys and replacing it with real-time check-ins, you know, they make genuine, considerable changes to how the company operates. Awesome. So, I kind of when it when it comes to this, I mean, you know, looking on kind of my past history, you know, I think there's certain companies that stand out because they just have some values and behaviours, and they pin them up on a wall, and they expect that to be the thing. But what's your take on kind of values and behaviours within a, within the, you know the culture of a business? What, what's your take on that? So what, what specific aspect are you looking for for the, the culture? Well, I guess the way I see values and behaviors used in the past is we have these values and behaviors and we go, okay, these values and behaviors, we're gonna, they're going to align all the, customer, all the employee life cycle. It's going to hit every mm-hmm. single touch point of that life cycle. But fundamentally, what ends up happening is we put a list of five values or behaviors up on, on a big billboard and we put yep. them up on a wall in the business and then... You know, I think for me, the values and behaviors, there's so much nuance in, in just one value, never mind five. And I guess, yeah, I mean, have you seen values and behaviors succeed in companies or, you know, or, or what's your general take on them? Because I mean, me personally, and just speaking about me, I guess, I'm, I I struggle to see them really kind of come alive in businesses because obviously the, the moving parts within a business and, and sometimes these values and behaviors tend to be really static and rigid and and yeah we don't really seem to flow with with the people within the business yeah i always uh, you know when I, whenever i speak at conferences i always ask the uh the attendees to share what some of their values are and somebody always raises their hand and they say things like trust and value and cooperation and then i always ask the audience does anybody else have the same values and you see a lot of people raise their hands so there are a lot of companies that have the exact same values Trust, collaboration, fun, integrity, transparency, blah, 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 the list goes on. And so my belief is that the values in an organization aren't unique to, to a company. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have the same values, but what is unique is how the values come to life. So I'm a big believer, not in the values of the company, but in how the values manifest themselves. Like, I don't care if you tell me what your values are. I don't, I don't care if you have them on billboards or you make employees wear t-shirts with what those values are. Those are just words, right? I mean, I, I don't care. But what really makes a difference is if I were to write your values down on a sheet of paper, and if I were to walk around your company, would I genuinely see those things come to life? Do I see trust and collaboration and fun and transparency? If so, then those values are meaningful. But if not, then those values are useless. 
So that's where the behaviors, I think, really come into play. The, the behaviors of the leaders and the employees in the company need to align with the values that you say your company has. Otherwise, your values are useless. So, so I guess kind of when, when we look at kind of the, and I'll use employee life cycle, I recently did a post talking about, you know, the term experience design and how it's kind of used interchangeably. And, and actually, I think experience design needs to come from the top down, so to speak, because really the impact comes from the bottom up of experiences. It needs to be these nano experiences going into these micro, going into these macro experiences. And I think really when you look at an employee life cycle, it's just consistently, it's a, it's a flow of moments. You know, it's a flow of kind of a little big things what really matter to that person in that moment. But how many, how many kind of, yeah, how many, how many orgs have you seen where rather they look at something like an employee life cycle as moments rather than necessarily just as this system? A couple, uh, I think Adobe is, you know, thinking very much about moments that matter. Cisco does this. I think Accenture does this as well. Microsoft, I think is thinking about this, but most companies are still so obsessed with the employee life cycle that, um, and I would say the employee life cycle isn't how an employee thinks about their time with you. It's about how you think about an employee's time with you. Hmm. And if you were to go up to any employee in your company and say, what stage are you in? They're not going to know what you're talking about. They're probably going to wonder who you are and how you got in the building and you know what, who, why would you even ask what stage you're in? It's, a, it's an HR term. And so it's how we in HR like to think of an employee's time with us but employees think about their time with you in terms of moments. And these can be work-related moments or they can be personal moments, such as buying a house or having a first kid or you know what, whatever any of those personal moments might be. So I think it's crucial for us to understand those moments that matter in the lives of our employees. And part of it means that you need to understand your employees, not just as workers, but as individuals. And that's something that a lot of companies are having a hard time trying to figure out. So, so I guess when when we when we talk about our employees, and, and you know, a lot of the times it's kind of about you know, I think it was when we was talking with Ideal, one of their values was kind of do you upvote other people? Um, on your podcast recently, it was saying about one of the values is actually up upvoting and and making the team achieve. Um, and we talk about this thing of you know, liking the people around us, but I guess, but maybe this is a bit of a deep one, and, and go as deep or as light as you want with this one, Jacob, but. Do you even like yourself? I do. I don't think I'm perfect, but um, I do like myself. I, uh, you know, I, I work on different things. My wife is always encouraging me to work on different things, but I do like myself. I think if I didn't like myself, it would be very hard to do what I'm doing. It would be very hard to write. It would be hard to speak. It would be hard to do podcasts or videos or to put myself out there. Again, I don't think I'm perfect. I think I have a lot of things I need to work on. But I I do like myself. I, I I think I'm a good person. I think I um am a good uh husband or or decent husband. Uh, I think my wife would say I'm a good husband, <laughs> good good dad. So, you know, I work on things. I try to be present, I try to be in the moment, I try to give time and attention to the people that I'm with. I I really uh try to focus on those things. I try to practice empathy, I try to work on self-awareness. So I, I do like myself. That's good. That's good. I think, I think it's kind of that thing of, you know, isn't it? It's that kind of perfect versus good. And I think it's so hard 
you know, so hard, that perfect does not exist. And I think it's it's great to kind of hear, you know, there's elements of, of you constantly working and, and and changing things. And it's it's such a good thing to hear. So so I kind of just want the question what just really popped into mind, actually, thinking about when we got talking about the orgs. And, you know, one of the things which I constantly see within, within the business now is this kind of, the, the org structure, I guess, and got this thing of going teal and and going to a much more teal approach. What's what's your take on that? Have you seen many companies succeed in this and and kind of have this going teal approach, or, or have you seen it fail more than succeed? Wait, so what what was the approach one more time? So it's it's called going teal. So it's about kind of moving from this lone wolf approach of a business going right up to this, um, you know, rather than rather than having this kind of hierarchy of one person with with the power it goes to this people have the power who want the power there's no middle management or anything like that um not practical or scalable um you know there have been a lot of different concepts and ideas that have emerged whether you look at holacracy whether you want to call it a teal organization regardless of, of what you want to call it and you can always find a couple examples of organizations that represent that kind of a model. And these are usually organizations who either started that way or organizations who um, are smaller. But if you go into an organization that has thousands of employees and, you know, Zappos tried to do this. Zappos tried to embrace holacracy. Medium, the blog publishing platform, tried to embrace holacracy. And this isn't meant to, to be that these structures are bad. I just think for larger organizations... It takes too much time and too much effort and too much cost to be able to make these realistic and scalable structures. And when you consider that, you know, if, if you were to make sure that nobody left the company, right? So Zappos, would they have 1,500, 2,000 people? If nobody were to leave the company and you were to say, look, everybody, you're, you're forced to stay here for three years while we go through this transition, maybe, maybe it would work. But in addition to going through this transition, you also have employees who are coming and going. You have new managers, you have new leaders, some are leaving, some are joining the company. Employees, it's just too much. So as much as these structures might sound appealing, I don't think they are practical or realistic, especially for larger companies. And in fact, the organizations, many of them who have tried this, have abandoned these efforts for that exact reason. And the reality is that having some structure or some hierarchy isn't bad. I mean, some structure is okay. So I think what is far more realistic and practical and scalable is to flatten out the hierarchy, improve communication and collaboration, make it two-way, remove this idea of this pyramid where only the people at the top have the decision-making power, um, but flatten it as much as you can and, and have, have some structure. That is more practical and more scalable. And if you look at some of the world's leading companies, whether you look at um, an Accenture or LinkedIn or Facebook or Microsoft or whoever you want to look at, they've all embraced this approach. They don't get rid of their traditional structure and, and go teal or embrace holacracy or do anything like that. They make significant changes, but they're not restructuring everything entirely. Because I think at the end of the day, that causes too much chaos for larger companies. Uh, these processes take oftentimes years. I think it, Zappos was on this journey for, what, two, three years before they abandoned it? And that's a company of 1,500 people. What is this going to look like for an employee base of 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 or 500,000? 
I mean, this is just uh, an unrealistic thing to expect organizations to embrace. So I think a lot of these concepts are more theoretical than they are practical or scalable, especially at the larger organizational level. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't things that we can learn from them to try to apply in bigger companies, but you, I don't think it's realistic to expect that, for example, IBM or Pepsi or any of these other organizations out there are going to embrace holacracy or go teal or do anything like that. They might get inspired by some of these ideas and take bits and pieces and learn from them, but they're not going to go full on with any of these structures, at least not from what I've seen. So, so kind of if, if, if we have, you know, there's potentially some of my listeners will be, um, you know, grads, apprentice and stuff. And, and maybe, maybe we've got a listener on who kind of wants to be the next Jacob and they want to, they want to, drive impact and, and kind of make an impact in, in their world, you know, they're, they're the hero in, in their world. And what, what five tips would you give to someone who kind of wants to either be the next Jacob or actually maybe it's, it's, they're going to make the journey into the employee experience and, and shaping and designing that. What five tips would you give to that person? Well, you start, I mean, that's, uh, it, it's, I wish it was complicated or there was like a series of steps. I mean, you start, it's sort of like, how do you learn to become a good swimmer? You jump in the pool, you know, you, you start, uh, you start moving around. So whether you are looking to become a speaker, whether you're looking to drive employee experience in your company, you start, I mean, you start having these conversations, you start letting people know you're interested in this, start sharing your ideas, start building your personal brand around this. And then you find that as you go down this journey, that things will happen. Doors will open. You will be invited into the right conversations and, and things will move in that right direction. You need to be patient. You know, it took me several years. So if you are willing to accept that it takes that long to build your personal brand, to get known for something, then go on that journey. But if your expectation is that you're going to be doing this for a couple of months or maybe even a year, and all of a sudden you're going to get invited to keynote conferences for thousands of people, you are very sorely mistaken. So it's, um, it's all about starting. It's all about being patient, making sure that you're consistent, making sure that you are frequent with your message, uh, and making sure that you are doing it in a way that is as visible as possible. Awesome. Awesome. Sound advice. So, so kind of, I just thought we could touch upon a little bit on, on the new book and obviously be mindful of, you know, what you can and what you can't share right now, but yeah, maybe, maybe you could share a little bit on kind of how that journey is right now and, and what, what a book's shaping to be or what, you know, I, I think I seen recently on, on Twitter, you kind of, there's a bit of a call out for, you know, CEOs potentially to get in touch, but maybe you could share a little bit on that. Sure. So the book is almost done. I've written around 64,000 words so far. Uh, my, my goal was 60,000. So I'm already far, far beyond that. And I'm likely going to get past 70,000. And the book is really exploring the future of leadership. So what is it going to take to be a leader in the year 2030 and beyond? And the book is based on interviews I did so far with 130 CEOs. I'll probably do a couple more before uh, the book is done. And it's also based on a survey that I did in partnership with LinkedIn, where we surveyed almost 14,000 employees around the world. So 130 CEOs, 14,000 employees, and I have all that data and research that's going to help me figure out what is it that we need to do as organizations and as individuals to become great leaders over the coming years. So if you want answers to that question, that's what the book is going to be about.
Oh, sounds sounds good. Sounds good. I think I hope so. I think I think one of the biggest things which I, I like about your books is your approach to it. Kind of, you know, you mentioned the data. The data is, you know, shaping that and kind of you you you're you're figuring the data out and looking at the trends and the analysis of it. And I think one of the things which I see when when designing leadership um in the past, I think there's a massive assumption businesses make around because the person's great at the job, we're going to be great in leadership. And that's that tends to be, you know, a big mistake. So, you know, maybe this is more about the selection process of a leadership. But yeah, I, I think I think your book's going to be fascinating because I think you're going to be coming at this from a completely different angle to that. And, and by the sounds of it, um, it's, it's it, it seems like it's free flowing and it, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this book, actually. It sounds awesome. I hope so. That's the idea. We'll see. So maybe kind of just kind of wrapping up a little bit now, Jacob, because I want to be mindful of your time. And right at the beginning, I kind of said to you, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? And as you, as you kind of already mentioned, we never truly grow up and we're constantly developing. So if I was to say to you now, Jacob, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you say now? Hmm. Well, I do enjoy what I'm doing now. I mean, my, my other goal, my personal goal is to become a chess master, uh, at least by over the next three years, by the time I'm 40, at least to become a national master in chess. So I always tell Blake, if I, if I, Blake is my wife, that if I were to quit everything that I'm doing and I had a billion dollars, I would probably focus all my time on, uh, playing racquetball, playing chess. And uh, who knows, maybe even trying to become a DJ one day. Uh, so that's nice. I, although I've never DJed in my entire life, um, it just looks fun and I like music. So who knows? But probably chess would be towards the, the top of my list. Oh, nice. Have you just, this is a complete off peak topic, but have you ever tried Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? I have not, no. And, and the reason why I say that, it's a random question, but. Um, so I, I kind of really got into that and, and, you know, and speaking how I was into CrossFit and stuff, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of had that came, that same switch for me as, as playing chess does, kind of that, you know, four or five moves ahead and, and kind of constantly, you know, scanning the, the horizon and working out the next plays, you know, three or four steps ahead. Um, and there's a great book actually called The, the Art of Learning. Have you read that at all? Who... Who wrote that one? Um, off the top of my head, I can't. I can't remember. I'll have to look it up when we get yeah. off. No, I, I haven't read it. No, and it's it's kind of the talk about Bobby Fischer and the chest, um, kind of protege, so to speak. And um, but yeah, I I, I I have to check that out. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I mean, Jake, where where can people kind of stay in touch? Where can we find you? Where can we kind of yeah? Where can we invest as much time as we can within you and the stuff what what you're working on? Thankfully, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, my website is thefutureorganization.com. My email address is jacob at thefutureorganization.com. And for people that are interested in the courses that I create, they can just go to futureofworkuniversity.com. Awesome. Jacob, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day, Jacob. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>